an interesting backstory. I think it's important that everybody knows about the Wizard of Oz. A professional with decades of experience in her field. I'm a psychotherapist who works pretty much exclusively with law enforcement officers as well as other first responders. Strong opinions and a definite point of view. What people see on the streets, this job is not normal. Brutally honest and funny. When I get a call in the middle of the night and they've been drinking beer, they're normally crying over a relationship. When they're drinking Jack, they get on the phone and they start off with, hey babe. She identifies problems, probes, pokes, and makes you think. So if something happens to your family, which is truly your biggest fear, and you haven't thought about every single potential of what could go wrong, then you feel like you failed. She has her own special style. You're either part of the problem or part of the solution. Pick a side. Welcome to Step Therapy 911 with Stephanie Samuels. So hello and welcome to Steph Therapy 911 with Stephanie Samuels. Today I am truly honored to have Sherry Martin on my show, who is the Director of Wellness Services for the National FOP. And although I have two pages, or actually a little over a page of a bio, I think the most important part of, of what we're going to be talking about today stems from an amazing background um that kind of the running joke that that i have with with cherry is that she and i met at um at a conference we can quickly uh, address but anyway that wasn't what was important we shared a lift together not having a clue who each other was but i believe i think she didn't have a phone there's a little something going on anyway i thought i should take care of her so uh so that was it and then uh then met at other conferences and just the, the national, what the national FOP is doing is so amazing because so often you hear these, these top organizations that, that represent so many law enforcement officers that they talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk that they, you know, talk about the mental health. They talk about the importance, but they don't back it with the services. So it is just absolutely incredible to be able to, to see what national FOP is doing to have the woman who is leading the charge for the FOP and and her background. So I'm gonna hand this over, Sherry, so that she can talk. She's she's totally uncomfortable talking about herself. So I have tasked her with this before we went live that she needs to, because to really understand how she was chosen, the success of this and her absolutely getting it on so many different levels from the law, the law enforcement side and the clinical side is just awesome. So, so thank you for coming on. Yeah. Thanks, Stephanie. I'm honored to be here as well. And uh, your introductory introduction is very flattering. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. I really just see myself as uh, you know, somebody who's following their passion and kind of the place that they were meant to be in life. And, uh, you know, I hope that everybody out there finds that at some point in their career um, because uh, it's it's truly rewarding to be in the place where I am now uh, and to be doing the work that we're doing with the FOP. So uh, going way back, um, I am your average, uh, you know, um, cop, to be honest. I um, 
military kid, military brat. So I moved around the U.S. when I was a kid. and But I spent most of my life in the southeast, um, southeastern states of the United States. And when I went to college uh, right after high school, I thought I wanted to be, first I thought I wanted to be a judge. Uh, I envisioned myself sitting on the Supreme Court one day. And um, once I got into college, I, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do and decided to major in psychology. And, um, you know, I think at the time I was, I was along the lines thinking, you know, big picture, forensic psychology, things like that, which I think a lot of college kids um, think that, oh, that'd be a really cool job. I'm going to go be a criminal profiler or something, something like that. Uh, quickly learned that, you know, that's a pretty narrow field in psychology, being a criminal profiler. But nevertheless, got that uh, degree in psychology and found that I really enjoyed psychology. But then I also learned that you can't really go far in the field of psychology without further degrees after college. And after four years of being broke and doing nothing but studying, um, I decided I didn't want to go to school anymore at that time. So I, uh, I had been an intern. I went to school at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And Chapel Hill is a small town uh, that's kind of built around the university there. And when I was at the university, I interned at the local police department, Chapel Hill Police Department. So it's a small agency. About the time, I think we had about 100 officers there. I'm not sure what their size is now. Why and, did you pick that as an internship? Uh, because the same thing, I, I was still interested in the forensic side of things. And okay. so uh, they had a lone um, crime scene person there. Uh, you know, a lot of agencies have a whole a whole um, uh, department of crime scene folks. They had one guy, um, Mr. Austin. And uh, so he allowed me to come in and intern with him. And it was a great experience for me. And uh, so what ended up happening is uh, because I had been an intern at Chapel Hill Police Department, that was a, a logical place for me to go uh, and look for a job. I knew I needed a job because I wasn't going to school and uh, I, I needed a job. So I went to Chapel Police Department, started there in my law enforcement career. I spent about a year in Chapel Hill and my brother, who also uh, was for a short time a police officer, was at the time living in Charleston because he had been in South Carolina because he had been in the military as well in the Air Force in Charleston, had uh, left the military, did stint with EMS, became a police officer. And he said, hey, Charleston's a great place you should really come to Charleston. You should move here. And so I did. So I then uh, joined the Charleston Police Department way back in 1997. And um, I spent 18 years in Charleston uh, in my career there in law enforcement. And the majority of my career there was in the patrol division. I always found that I like patrol work the best. Uh, I think it's a number of things. Short attention span, for one. Uh, I didn't have the patience, really, to... Uh, stick with, let's say, you know, like detective work where you have to follow a case for weeks and weeks and weeks. I like to be where the action was on the street. And uh, so I enjoyed patrol work. And Charleston's a, an interesting place because it's uh, now it's, you know, at the time when I went there in 97, it, it was it was still an undiscovered gem, really. But Charleston now is is become one of the most popular cities in the United States. And so it's growing now by leaps and bounds. Um, but I had the opportunity of watching that transition happen. 
And when I first moved to Charleston, there were still lots of parts of Charleston that were pretty rough. And uh, I spent a good bit of time working the rougher neighborhoods in Charleston. Um, and so I saw a, a good bit of action uh, in that patrol work. I did do some other assignments while I was at Charleston Police Department. I, I was in the warrants division for a while. Um, <clears throat> but then I promoted uh, up through the ranks through patrol. Uh, found that I, I still say the, the best job I ever had in law enforcement, at least, was being a patrol sergeant. Um, I enjoyed working hands-on with the, with the squads that I worked with, with the guys and girls, and actually doing the work, interacting with public and um, doing that, what I call real police work, out there on patrol. So, um, In my practice, that, that is the most common thing that people tell me, that, that has made rank above sergeant, no matter how high they've gone, including chief, at the best time they had. <laughs> Absolutely. It's the best of both worlds because you still get to do police work. Um, yep. You know, you can still go take calls as a sergeant in most cases. You know, you could still do the police work, but you don't have to do it. Let's face it. The mundane calls that you don't want to go to. Yep. Um, and you get to still interact with officers, you know, doing the jet teaching and, and um, you know, sharing your knowledge and experience with them. When you get above sergeant, you can, you're kind of, you feel like you're out of touch with it. Um, and so I know that because I ended up getting promoted to lieutenant in Charleston and uh, was evening shift watch commander there for a couple of years where, you know, at the Charleston Police Department is a pretty um, established, they're a very progressive organization. And so there's lots of uh, special units, special assignments there you know, from uh, canine to dive teams to uh, harbor patrol to, you know, special ag uh, aggressive uh, crime squads, lots of things there. And so as the evening shift watch commander, I supervised all of that. And, how you know, so it, department was it? I'm sorry. How, how big of a department? Uh, at the time I was there, it was about 450 sworn officers. I'm not sure now. I think it's I think it's a good bit larger now. Yeah. So. Um, lots of lots of things going on. And, you know, so the way that that, that that department is structured is that the majority of the command staff there works daytime hours. So in the evening shift time, I was basically it. I was the highest ranking person working. So I was responsible for everything going on uh, with that police department. So it was an interesting switch of perspective to, um, you know, having been the person out there doing all that work to, you know, having to manage sometimes several critical incidents at once, several scenes at once in a pretty widespread geographic area. You know, I, I now live in Connecticut where if you travel six miles, you've gone through two or three towns. Um, Charleston is, is many, many square miles large. So, you know, I, I had to move around the area quite a bit sometimes. So that was an interesting perspective to have to be on that side of it. And to, you know, to try to think of things um, as a commander when you're used to thinking of things as a police officer, a hands-on supervisor. So good experience. Um, you know, and one thing I'll, I'll back up just a little bit. When I, when I was working as a patrol sergeant, um, there was a point in my career in law enforcement where I thought, you know, two things. One day, I'm not going to want to do this. I'm going to be too old. Uh, you know, I'm going to be <clears throat> at retirement age 
and not for nothing, I did go to school for something else. So um, I probably ought to do something uh, to prepare. So I went back to school as a sergeant. There uh, in Charleston, there's the Citadel, which is the Military University of South Carolina. They have a graduate program there. So I enrolled in the clinical counseling program there at the Citadel, went to school while I was working full time as a police sergeant, um, which which was manageable until I got to internship. And um, because there's a full length practicum and internship built into that program. That's a pretty quality program. So during my internship year, which I did at the V hospital in Charleston, um, <clears throat> I was trading all my shifts for midnight shifts and working at the hospital during the day and then going to midnight shifts or yeah. evening yeah. shifts and then back to the VA in the morning. So the, uh, the, but the experience of going through that program uh, was outstanding. I had uh, fantastic professors and the, uh, internship that I did was on a research project that was working on teletherapy. So um, I was doing actual in-person therapy with clients at the VA and the, the clientele that I had were suffering from PTSD and trauma related symptoms, as well as some of them with clinical depression. So we did a lot of treating of those things in person, but then I would also have clients that I was seeing over teletherapy. So this is way before COVID times. This is way back around, right. around 2012 that I was doing this. And what the, what the research was trying to come was to compare outcomes between teletherapy and in-person therapy. And, you know, the point is, is that if we can conduct teletherapy and have the same outcome that we can, if we do in-person therapy, then we can do therapy with soldiers that are in theater overseas um, real time so that they can benefit from therapy while they're actually overseas in conflict. So um, that was a, that was a great experience as well. I learned a lot. And I, even after my internship finished and I had completed all my hours, I continued to work at the VA on that project for a while just because I enjoyed that work so much. Um, and is there actually, an outcome to that? I, I assume there is. An you know, outcome. I, there is. And I, and I don't know what it is. I, I didn't follow up to, to find out. Um, I, you know, I should find out because it's, it would but be interesting to know. Particularly now. So let me tell you, because because this becomes really quite, quite relevant in what's going on today. So when you have an officer who, uh, for us, what we'll call cop line, and they are in, they state that they are in Oklahoma, but we don't have culturally competent therapists, let's say, near them it would allow us to potentially refer out of state Absolutely. because right now there's licensing laws that are governing um, being able to see people out of state. What's been able to help is if they're in Oklahoma, we can find somebody culturally competent. They could be four hours away though, because of the state, but as long as they're willing to do, you know, the, the meetings via telehealth, but I, I would love personally to get, to see what they said to really be able to push that because then for for us you know here in new jersey it also becomes a legislative push sure of, of being able to keep telehealth in place and the benefits and then really um once again impacting so incredible incredible study and incredible incredible information yeah you bet i you know and, and now that you mentioned that i'm going to follow up with that and see if see if i can find out what became of that it may, it may still be ongoing to be honest um 
but <clears throat> I would like to know myself. That's especially it's relevant to current oh. situation. <laughs> Absolutely. So relevant now. That would be great. And, and even if they don't have the, the final results, they should have, you know, marks that they have met that we'll right. see. Because if they know it's not working, they'll kill the, the research, kind of like cancer research. If, if they find that, that, that they have like a 90% cure on a research project, then it completely redoes the protocols before that. If they're finding that people are dying at greater lengths than, than the traditional stuff, they stop the research because it's not working. Who right. wants to fund stuff? So it'd be really interesting because you'll know just by, even if it's going on, then we know it certainly is positive enough that somebody's going to continue to fund this. Absolutely. So that, yeah. That'd be wonderful, sure. That'd absolutely be awesome. Good stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. um, so, you know, and then while this is all going on with uh, my law enforcement career and my education, I uh, got involved in the FOP uh, way back when I moved to Charleston. So way back in 97, I started being an active member of the FOP. Um, and then I had such an interest in the, in the work that the FOP was doing and the mission and the point of the FOP that I really got involved in that. On an e-board level, on a what level? Um, so, so go ahead. Yeah. So, um, so at the beginning, obviously, I was just a member, but then I got into leadership in the FOP first on a local lodge level. I was local lodge officer for a while, and then uh, sat on the state board in South Carolina for a while. I was a South Carolina state treasurer, and then the South Carolina state vice president. And um, then life intervened. So, uh, my husband, who's also ah. law enforcement and uh, also an FOP member and I we met uh, during an FOP conference at some point during my career uh, we were friends for a long time and uh, then eventually our friendship became more than a friendship and so that's how I ended up in Connecticut so uh, when I left South Carolina I was a lieutenant of the Charleston Police Department I had completed uh, my master's degree in counseling and was doing some work in counseling there at the VA and was the sitting state vice president of South Carolina State Lodge. So <clears throat> I, I moved then to Connecticut, got back into law enforcement here in Connecticut as a patrol officer. Um, and, you know, it was a cool thing because my husband um, was finishing his first law enforcement career. He's retired and back to work at another agency. And so we both kind of started over at the same time. Uh, we both had been lieutenants in our previous agencies and we both went back to patrol in a new agency at about the same time. So you imagine 240 somethings both trying to navigate shift work and midnight shift over again and being newlyweds and all the things that came along with that. Um, so there we were. So um, he's still in law enforcement. He's now sergeant for the second time. And uh, so and then, you know, once I moved to Connecticut, um, I, of course, remained involved in the FOP, both uh, at the state level and on a national level at the time, because uh, Chuck Canterbury, who's the former uh, past president, who's the immediate past president of the FOP, was a mentor of mine. And I had for years uh, run his campaigns for national office. So I had a lot of uh, experience in the FOP. I knew a lot of FOP leaders around the country um, from that experience. And I, I have always had a personal love for the FOP because of what it stands for. 
Um, you know, in law enforcement, we know there's such a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And the FOP has always bolstered that. You know, what the FOP looks like uh, is different in different places. So, for example, um, you know, coming from the South, there's not much union or organized labor among law enforcement in the South. I think Florida, Texas may be some of the only places that they actually have organized labor and unions and law enforcement. But <clears throat> folks in other parts of the country, the FOP is their union. It, they do their bargaining for them on, on work contracts. And I didn't have a, a really a lot of knowledge of that because coming from South Carolina, the FOP is more of an advocacy and a fraternal organization. You know, we do the kind of down south, we did the kind of things where, you know, we support members when they're going through a tough time. Um, we had lobbyists that lobbied state legislature to influence legislation that would affect law enforcement. But there were no, you know, bargaining for labor rights or anything like that down south. So it's a different ballgame here in New England. Um, you know, there's a lot more labor influence, labor involvement up here in New England. So I, I learned about that and um, now sit as a second vice president on the state board of the Connecticut State Lodge. Uh, I'm, I'm proud and happy to say. And I've learned a great deal about the other missions of the FOP. But, you know, to me, for the for the biggest part of my FOP career, it was about supporting each other and um, being there for each other in times of crisis. You know, as I'm listening to you talk, I'm going to take you back to um, to to the police stuff. But before I do, you know, as I'm listening to you, you know, one of one of the things that I have truly cherished with the FOP. So I've been writing a Dear Steph column in New Jersey for it's been just about over 20 years now. And one of the things that just um, has really stayed with me is their inclusiveness mm. is how you have retired members that are absolutely active oh yeah how, how they are welcomed how even though you can have officers affiliated with other unions or organizations they still welcome them whereas here in new jersey that is not the case it is absolutely horrendous um had a had an officer who ended up being harassed and his brother had died in the line of duty and that the only thing that the union he belonged to cared about was you're being interviewed by the FOP paper are you a member because you can't have a dual membership rather than really being able to commend him for what he was doing um that's a shame so it, it, it is um so so and now listening to you you actually confirmed on a deeper level. So what you told me was, or what you told everybody was that you had a really good relationship with Chuck Canterbury, who is mm. the, the past sitting president. So a lot of times you find that presidents that, that then, you know, end up beating the incumbent, literally wipe out anybody who is affiliated. <laughs> <clears throat> and, and they literally take some of the best people and out of a whole lot of different issues end up saying no. And so it really speaks so highly of, of the current president, um, Pat Yos, who has been amazing, to, to once again look at all these people as people not 
you know, not not dividing them up into friends, foes or whatever, is who's the best person in these positions? I don't give a shit who they support or who, you know, that's not what this is about. Who are the best? Because the FOP is about getting the best people and the right people in the positions. And like I said, you know, uh, though it's certainly awkward meeting. I mean, you, you sat at a table for, you know, for a cops conference where they brought you know, people together that are in the here and, 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 and now and in the know and they believe are, are going to try and help law enforcement. And that's where we met. And then you and I testified. But it, it really shows the importance of, of the FOP, of this national organization that has said, we are picking the best and we're just not talking about wellness we're going to make sure that happens and then reading your bio and that's what i said i wasn't going to read your bio because you needed to talk your bio once you read it it's like this is absolutely the person not the woman not the man the individual that we want at these at these tables and in this position because it has nothing to do with with your your sex it has to do with your background yeah and being and being able to move up through the <clears throat> ranks being able to see things to be able to be educated to understand and then and then to have such a unique um internship with the va hmm. so one of the things i was questioning you mentioned that you're an army brat yeah air force actually yeah. air force brat. <laughs> So I, I, I did, I said army because I was going to say military brat, except <laughs> my daughter's in the army. So I'm automatically going army. Um, so air force brat, dad and mom or just dad? Just my dad. I guess uh, you could say though, you know, once your spouse is in the military, so are you, but yeah, just my dad. <laughs> did he see combat? Uh, yes, actually he went to Vietnam. So my dad is a, is a proud Vietnam vet. Thank him for uh, thank him for his service, and uh, yeah, we're taking, yesterday was was Veterans Day, so yeah. Um, PTSD in the house ever talked about? Yeah, no, um, you know, and I, I I think that my dad, um, if he's if he has suffered any PTSD, I think it's it's become it wasn't ever apparent, you know, to to my brother and I, you know, I think there are some things now that I'm educated about PTSD and the symptoms of it. You know, I can see some things like the <clears throat> short temper, you know, some, some of those other things, you know, I don't think that he was ever, um, at least if he was, I was not aware of him having any re-experiencing, um, you know, maybe some hypervigilance, but I think more of the other things that come along with it, the anger, you know, um, the, the shortness of patience and, and things like that. I can see that sometimes my mother um, will complain that he has some of those symptoms, but I think that's more of, of her, <laughs> you know, <laughs> my mom. So, um, but yeah, no, I mean, it wasn't, you know, I mean, I mean, let's be honest. It, it wasn't even something anybody talked about. Um, if people right. even knew what it was, you know, right. well, going back into the sixties. So it was, so I think it was combat neurosis, uh, uh, shell shock, combat neurosis, and then uh, and then uh, post traumatic stress disorder didn't hit really our diagnostic manuals into the nine until nineteen eighties. So right, right. Um, so it wouldn't have been, but it's just 
there's just a question, you know, kind of in looking back, because you're right, it would have been more of a retrospect than it yeah. would have been, you know, going through it. But certainly knowing it and, and being a, a child of, of, um, of a dad who had been in Vietnam and kind of what that looked like overseas as well as at home. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I, I have, the, have had the benefit, uh, if you will, of, um, you know, growing up in a military environment. So friends of the family were military folks, um, even still. And, you know, so having that experience uh, and then working at the VA and, you know, having already that background of knowing, you know, some of the military jargon and, and what life is like in the military, I was able to relate to that. And then, you know, a lot of our officers are, are military or former military. So, you know, that's that's given me a, a perspective, too, you know, that the uh, my experiences in law enforcement, you know, having been involved in critical incidents myself, having lost coworkers in the line of duty, having lost coworkers to suicide, um, you know, having been on the scenes of officer involved shootings where officers were shot and, you know, managing all the things that come along with that, with the educational background, with my love uh, of an experience in the FOP, kind of put me in this place and to, you know, kind of taking a step further about how the FOP got to where we are now with the things that we're doing. Uh, we had had, the FOP has a number of committees that, that do work within the FOP on a, on a range of things. The wellness committee is just one of those committees. Um, previously until a few years ago, our organization has mostly been labor and legislative support for law enforcement. So, you know, we, are that arm that sometimes uh, advocates for labor rights. We, you know, lobby legislate le legislatures to, you know, affect uh, legis legislation that affects law enforcement. But <clears throat> wellness was just a committee, uh, you know, among all the other committees that we have, whether that's, you know, we have a committee that looks at border safety and security. We have a committee that looks at, um, you know, pension systems, all of these things that the FOP does. And wellness was just one of those things. And then, uh, we had an opportunity as a wellness committee, um, and, and I became the chair of that committee. Now, at the time, I was still a working police officer and, you know, was just appointed to be the chair of that committee. Um, and we had an opportunity to, to do a survey. Um, and, and there's a long backstory behind how that came about. But uh, we did this in conjunction with NBC affiliates in New York City, and the survey turned out to be a very big deal, much bigger than we, you know, we knew this is uh, this is going to be really cool. We're going to be able to, you know, learn some things about what our members are going through. We're going to be able to, you know, but our objective on the wellness committee with doing the survey was to find out where cops were getting services, if they were using services, if they weren't using them, why weren't they using them? And to fill in those gaps, because as the FOP, you know, I knew intuitively from being a police officer and being in that environment that cops don't ask for help. I know they don't ask for help because they don't trust that it's going to be confidential. You know, I knew all that intuitively from being in law enforcement. You know, I know uh, that lots of cops, you know, for example, I'll give you an easy one. Um, <laughs> when I was working through my career, 
I saw a number of coworkers go through officer-involved shootings. Either they were shot or they shot someone or, you know, something like that. Most of those officers within a year or two of their incident left law enforcement. And so I knew, you know, this is taking a huge toll on people. These kinds of things take a toll on people. I knew, you know, the way that my personality had changed um, over the course of my law enforcement career. And I'm like, yeah, but no, nobody's using certain. And I knew why they weren't. But I wanted the survey. I wanted to do this survey to find out what other people would say. You know, if if they are all are saying the same things that I'm already feeling. And lo and behold, the survey <laughs> did say that. You are accurate. So, you know, we learned in the FOP what we could do because we're not affiliated. We're not tied to a chief. We're not tied to an administration. We're not, you know, we are independent of every law enforcement organization. And we're in a unique place because of that, that we can provide services that, that an officer might trust to use, you know, that it won't affect their career. When we had set up or when I had set up uh, the cop line, uh, you know, I had legislated you know, for, for other, for another law enforcement line. So, so this is my second law enforcement line. And the key for, for cop line was truly confidentiality, which meant you're not pinging phones, you're not tracing calls. And knowing damn well that our training was phenomenal and that, that people that call hotlines don't typically die by suicide. We statistically know that. So that, you know, we have trained that we're at 51%. If they call that line, I'll take 51% because the ambivalence is there. But if they don't call, we don't, we're not at 51%. So being able to say, we are a non-rescue line. We are not pinging your phones. We're not sending rescue. We are going to sit in that hole with you as long as we need to. And that, you know, and it's not just for suicide because, because the belief is if we can grab them with low hanging fruit and, and we're starting to see it. So now they call back a year, two years later, Hey, you know, I called you know, last year, you know, now I've got this, you know, much greater thing going on, but they realize nobody called, you know, nobody, nobody told my department, <laughs> nobody, it didn't get back to anybody. So, so really being being so mindful of that and then being able to get those culturally competent therapists. And that's one of the things that we're all kind of grabbing and, you know, Copland will work with you guys because this takes, it's, you know, the old, the old adage, it takes a village. Oh, it takes more than a village. Yeah. Um, and the importance of that is just phenomenal because Jack of all trades, master of none was never our goal. We're a freaking hotline. We have a, we just stay in one lane. That's it. But so important to be able to hand off to other people and say, you know what, have you, you know, have you considered a mental health profession? You've got so much going on. We have vetted people, you know, that, that are culturally competent in this area. It's just phenomenal to be able to do that and, and to truly try and plug in holes that we know exist and understanding it's not just hypervigilance. It is the reality of their worlds. Yeah. I can't, we can't promise them that if their chiefs find out that they're getting mental health services, 
that they're not going to be sent for a fitness room, do they? Yeah. And yet, I know, you know, mostly Jersey-based, um, but have a pretty good pretty good pulse on, on uh, you know, California and Texas at this point. But knowing that when they send them for a fitness for duty, the fact that they're in counseling is really looked very favoritively yeah. rather than anything. Else. It is just that fear. Yeah. And that, that fear is literally killing them. So, so knowing that there is, is an organization as large as the FOP that gets it on so many different levels. You know, I, I I have heard the word resiliency ad nauseum um, because that is the latest buzzword. Yeah. But you obviously were resilient when you got when you came on the job. Like if yeah, you right. didn't have that, so we've now just you know we've given a nice word that that people like to fund and hear or what have you. But you know we we continue to recreate the wheel. I think the most important part about resiliency is how did you become resilient so here's what we know you have survived every worst day of your life how did you do that what was the worst day and how did you do that because that is resiliency so if we can grab from there and we can train on them becoming more aware of truly the inner resources they've had because the profile of a cop is typically somebody who's grown up in crisis does well in crisis doesn't know how to live without crisis somebody who <laughs> has issues with a father figure or significant loss early in life somebody who has history of abuse emotional physical um sexual or neglect it makes for a great cop it makes for a difficult home life mm. but if you can grab from from that then you, then I really do think we're going to be able to start impacting on those suicide rates that are just so difficult because those are the ones we can stop. Yeah. Those line of duties. I, I I hate saying that 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 that's the the known is you could die. I don't think right. in their head, not their heart. I think they kind of know it, but right. but that suicide piece. That's the piece where you feel like I can do something here. What can I do? What are these pieces? And I feel like the FOP is doing just that. They're looking at this on a on both a breadth and a depth level and being able to allocate resources and not a you know, a FOP might have money. There's just not millions of dollars that we get to plug into wellness or what have you. You know, it's there's so much going on. I mean, legislation right now with, oh. with the shift in societal issues. There's just there's only so much, so much that anybody can do. But the understanding and then you guys being able to connect with organizations. And I know you guys have been wonderful with, with Copline, but to be able to truly vet mm. the organizations to make sure that they're congruent with what your mission is because yeah. there's nothing worse than putting up a resource and finding out that they aren't doing what you think that they're doing that they that they're transferring lines to a to a service at night or mm -hmm. um you know i know for for us there's a whole big thing we wanted to set up texting 
you know, we've got we've got over a hundred volunteers <clears throat> and all different backgrounds. And one of the volunteers came back and said, I will not participate in texting. I was on enough wires and said under the Fourth Amendment, we these officers phones are going to be taken. They will then be able to read every text to Copline. We didn't go to texting. So it, it, it's again, because because truly the road to hell is paved by good intentions. Yeah. The one thing that I'm smart enough to know is I'm not smart. So before <laughs> I do something, I don't I, agree, but okay. <laughs> I got a real you, you know what you don't know though, right? I got a slice of pie, you know, give me a good scoop, I'm good, but keep going past that. Like I always say, Family suck. It's family therapy. Kids don't bring your kids to get <laughs> <Yeah>, one slice. <laughs> but but being able to put it out to to over a hundred people that we have vetted, that we have put through our training, that that have had experiences beyond, incredible to get the feedback because they've got they've got the pulse on stuff that we didn't think about. They have they have the blind side. So is you know this was great, and I know that that teen lines are doing texting. They're getting a ton of texts. I've got to. I cannot inadvertently put a cop in harm's way, and yeah. then say, well, you know, I I didn't know. It was my responsibility before I launch something to know. It's my responsibility before we authorize anything to go on the website. Are they really doing what they say they're doing? Because otherwise, they're going to go back and they're going to say, I got this off your website. I trusted your website and cops don't trust. Yeah. Yeah, what, what yeah that's crucial, you know, um, that the, 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 the confidence and the confidentiality pieces are crucial. Um, you know, and I think, you know, uh, we have obviously a, a number of projects and programs that we're building now in wellness in the FOP. With, with wellness becoming now our third pillar of our organization with along with labor and legislative, um, we are one of the things that I say repeatedly, um, you know, that is, is not so much of a project or program that we're building to fill in those gaps is that we want to make it our goal to maintain a conversation about wellness constantly um, because that's one way that we're going to break down stigma that still remains. I mean, you know, we've gotten away, um, you know, among professionals in this arena from talking about stigma. We all know it's there, but in order, it's still present. In order to continue to break it down, we have to talk about wellness, talk about wellness, talk about how important it is, talk about paying attention to it, um, you know, talk about normalizing calling a hotline you know if like you said if they call cop line and nobody comes after them after a year that builds confidence and then cops talk to each other i always say you know i was sitting on a panel maybe a year ago a panel of experts and they're talking about you know how to get cops to buy in and how cops you know to, to take some of these strategies that we're building and use them and you know and, and i see you you guys are forgetting one thing is that cops ask other cops for advice so let's say for you know like first of all there's a million like social media groups out there that are just for law enforcement you know like there's groups on facebook that you can only be a member of if you're in law enforcement they can verify that you're in law enforcement guys will get on there and ask for who cuts your grass 
I mean, and if they're going to ask for, you know, advice, they're going to ask a buddy who they trust that's been through it. And so, you know, we want to make sure in the FOP that we are able to provide that from somebody that they trust. So when we start to vet programs or practitioners or, you know, we started with inpatient treatment facilities, even before we had a wellness division, the wellness committee was vetting inpatient treatment facilities. So, you know, <clears throat> right now we have four that we have MOUs with. And because this is a time consuming process, what we're doing, because when we vet a facility and it's going to follow with individual practitioners and other wellness programs that are out there because they're coming out of the woodwork everywhere now, um, we have a thorough vetting process that we go to. So for example, for an inpatient facility, we physically go there. We tour the facility, every nook and cranny and corner. We talk to uh, clients that are at the facility out of the presence of staff. If we're not allowed to talk to them out of the presence of staff, that's a red flag to us. Um, you know, if staff feel like they have to hover over while we talk to a client about their experience in that facility, that's an issue for us because we want an honest appraisal from that officer or other first responder of what kind of experience they're having in the program. So by doing that, we are identifying those, those uh, facilities and programs that we know are quality and making sure that we follow up with people who go through the program or, or see that practitioner or provider to see what their experience was. Because, you know, like you said, we don't want to recommend something. We did the same thing with Copline. I mean, we, somebody on our committee called Copline and went through a whole vetting process with Copline. And so, you know, we found that Copline was fantastic. So we recommend Copline. But, but that's what you need to do. And I always say, you know, when I lecture, I'm like, for God's sakes, don't believe me. I founded the damn thing. I'm the director. Don't believe me. Hmm. You know, call it. Call yeah. it at weird hours. When you wake up for, for the male piss if you're over 40, call it then. You know, you want to know, you know, who at, at these off hours and what's going on because that's really vetting. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, that, that's doing true due diligence. And that's imperative. Yeah. You know, I, Another thing that we've been able to do because of our structure is we can go to, you know, so I, I'm one person. I even the guys on my committee don't know all the corners you know, over the country and what what practitioners are out there. So we're going to our state lodges and our local lodges and saying, if you know a practitioner or a program or a provider in your area that you think is quality that has that expertise in working with law enforcement, let us know who, who they are so that the committee can take a look and the committee can go through our vetting process and put them on this directory that we're building of services. You know, and when this directory is complete, and a cop will be able to go to the directory, find resources in their area, you know, and be able to use those and trust that they've been vetted and that they're gonna be quality and that they're gonna be uh, culturally competent in this area so huge you know when we do the applications for uh for retirees who are you know potentially going to be answering the lines it, it pretty in depth and one of the questions is have you ever you know seen a mental health uh provider and would you recommend that person and then that's one of the ways that we then start to vet um who it is and, and it's also a way that we vet our our uh, our retirees, because if we have a retiree that has never sought counseling, and then you know, so my first, so I'm the first kind of line that um, of vetting, they'll call them up, 
and address it. And if I've got people that do not believe in counseling, it's going to be too heavy of a lift. That's not going to be a good fit for Copline because they bring that bias in with them. Right. So it, it really is looking at just a whole lot of different um, layers um, because not everybody, unfortunately, that goes through training ends up on the lines. They just, you know, they, they, they don't. Their heart's in the right place. Amazing men and women just being able to get the active listening skills and the amount um, and the shift that has to take place of what they've done their whole careers, which is give advice. Yeah. Um, that, that can no longer do that. So uh, pretty interesting. You had discussed, you had been involved in really from, from just what you were quickly kind of rattling off, you, probably some of the most stressful and difficult incidents. In looking back on your law enforcement career, what was the worst day you had on the job? I think to be honest, um, it's the day I think that I realized that um, we're mortal, you know, and, and you go into law enforcement, especially as a young person. Uh, I was 22 years old when I started and you don't really have a sense of how quickly your life could be taken and under what circumstances or, or just how bad things can be. And so um, I, what happened is um, I, I had some coworkers who were involved in an incident with an armed suspect and there, there was um, someone being held hostage, the, the hostage managed to escape, but they ended up confronting this armed suspect in the corridor of a residence and in the dark and um one officer fired and and killed the armed suspect but in doing so one of his rounds ricocheted and hit his partner uh and also killed his partner so that was a uh, that was sort of a um wake up call for me like that could have been me and many times over my career you know I was you know when you're a law enforcement officer you're in a dangerous dangerous situation you're not fearful in the situation because you don't have time to be you have to react you have to you know you have to do your job it's only after it's over that you sit back and you go wow that could have really gone differently and that's when it starts to screw with your head a little bit because, you you know, you realize you, you could have been killed. You could have, you know, but for the grace of God, go I. Lots of things could have been different. You know, you could have been the one that had to pull the trigger and take someone's life. How many years at that point were you into your career? Uh, that was two years. It's two years in, into my career. And, you know, so I, I you know, I, I think of that you, you worst day. I say it's both a blessing and a curse. I think the way that I viewed the job changed at that point, but it had both good and bad outcomes. I mean, I think it made me much more aware of my own mortality, but it also made me a lot more careful. It made me, um, I think, you know, a better cop because I was more um, uh, tactically sound after that. Um, you know, I, I think I was more real realistic about what the job was. You know, you, when you're brand new and you don't, see anything like that for a while like I can't imagine 
you know, going a whole career and not going through something like that. I mean, it's great. It's a great, safe career if you can. But I, you know, I, in a way, I feel fortunate that I, and maybe this is just my mindset. In a way, I feel fortunate that I went through that early in my career because I think it prepared me for all of the other times that that would happen to me, you know, during my career. Not that same incident, but, you know, the loss of someone, you know, because that was a double whammy um, for our agency. You know, it was, you know, a really, 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 really good cop involved in a really bad situation. And, you know, fortunately, he got the support he needed, did, had a, had a stellar career um, after that and, you know, retired when he could, has still has a stellar life, has gone on to a second career, uh, fared very well, you know, but, but that could have, had he not had adequate, adequate support, it could have taken a different turn for him. You know, watching him go through that anguish and then also losing a co-worker in the line of duty at the same time, that was really a double whammy. And so, you know, it, it for, and forget about, you know, the rest of us. I, you know, I wasn't at the call. I wasn't, but the, you know, the impact of realizing what they had gone through and being able to, you know, sympathize, empathize with what they might be going through. Um, you know, it, I think it really... Um, it, it, it prepared me, I think, for a lot of, you know, what was to come throughout my career, losing coworkers and, you know, seeing people go through that. Um, but yeah, I guess that's, that's probably the best answer I can give you. The best day on the job. Oh, best day. Good. I would say when I, when I left, when I left, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> just, I was just kidding. Um, best day. Oh, good question. There's been lots of great, I mean, there were lots of great days. Um, you know, I think um, it, there's different kinds of best days. So, you know, the, the you know, maybe the best day career-wise is the day I finally got promoted to lieutenant because I, I tried a couple times and that was, a you know, a goal of mine. But um, I'm sure that there were hundreds of best days where I felt like I made a difference and an impact on somebody's life, you know, whether it be big or small, you know, um, being able to change the outcome of something that was negative and, and turn it into a positive outcome. And, you know, there, one thing I say is that I'm not sure if it's, if it's age or, or, but I, I've often said that I think the job took my memory. I can't remember a lot of things that I did over the course of my, uh, 20 something year career and, you know, good and bad. Um, you know, but I, I know many times, you know, I went out and worked, and and sometimes worked a really long hard shift but felt good at the end of it even though i was exhausted because i felt like i had done something positive if if we get to look in a crystal ball and it's five years from now what are you hoping to see on a national fop basis and your role there what, what what's the lay of the land oh my god i have so many so many <laughs> and everything what 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 does that yeah so um well the two projects that we're working on should be completed uh well before that so one that we have the approved provider bulletin up uh and available on our website so that that's a directory that will be able to be used 24 7 365 for officers out there um, two, that we have completed, we're developing um, 
standardized peer support curriculum in, in cooperation with the Department of Justice. So that's going to be a standardized peer support program so that when you get that training, you are stamped peer supporter, um, trained peer supporter. So, and it's going to be, um, you know, like a national certification. So uh, my hope is that we have a large number of people trained in that curriculum uh, within five years. And we got lots of certified peer supporters out there. So that, uh, because what we're going to do is as we deliver that training, which is going to be called Power in Peers, uh, we are going to create a network of peer supporters around the country. So, you know, Stephanie, you probably know that even though uh, an agency might have peer support. Officers still may not be confident in their own agency's peer support, especially if it's a small place, um, because they might still be fearful that, you know, Joe or Sally is going to have a couple beers and spill. So, you know, if we create this national network and we are able to say, you know, that this peer in Colorado is trained in power and peers, then this officer in need in Connecticut can call Colorado and know that they're going to be understood, know that they're speaking to someone trained and know that that person isn't going to go back to their agency in Connecticut and, you know, have a few and spill. Now, we would hope, obviously, that nobody would ever do that anyway, but it would eliminate the fear if they could go to that resource. And then with the approved provider bulletin at the ready, that trained peer supporter in Colorado has resources to tell the person in Connecticut that they can go to. It's great. I mean, one of the things that I know that we have wanted is to be able to have a list of peer supports that somebody can actually see face to face. Because for us, that's not you will never meet your caller. Sure. You know, no, no matter what the circumstances. So but being able to then, you know, hand them off to a peer. Um, that's still active or what have you. That would be such a, a gift to be able to connect. Um, oh, yeah. On that level. One other thing I want to add, too, is, you know, it's it's heartening to me to see entities come together. So us, cop, you know, you cop line, FOP, you know, any other entities out there that are working together to build resources. So, for example, you know, when we build the approved, approved provider bulletin, we're going to share with you what we have. You know, hopefully you'll share with us what, you, you know, will the and, the and the profession will work together to build that to build those resources so that it's not just FOP. It's all of us. There is no ego in this. I mean, there there is no no. There's no winner as long as right. we have suicides. It, it, there's there's no winner as long as we have officers. There are no winners. Right. It is about every one of us doing the right thing, not the easy thing. The right thing. The other thing that the FOP might need to get involved with on the peer side is the different laws that govern different states because if that peer is engaging in domestic violence, drug use, or what have you, if the officer is, that peer has a potential for having to do something. And it's one of the reasons why on Copline, we're all, they're all retired officers. That was the reason why, is, yeah. is to eliminate the conflict. So, and it's also why mental health professionals are not answering the lines because if somebody is suicidal, that also. So right. there's, there's just a lot of movable parts that needed to be looked at and understood. And again, you're doing such a phenomenal job. It's that, it's that road to hell that's paved by good intentions that 
you know, truly whatever we can do, whatever any any resources we have from legal on down that we've had to deal with that we can help, uh, you know, you guys with by all means, because it is about all of us figuring this out together. Yeah. It's not about who gets into what magazine, who gets ignited. It's not, it's, it's not about any of that. We're, right. we're all going to die one day. We're all, you know, this is, what have, we <laughs> right. left behind? have we left the world a little bit better? And when I go before, you know, my maker, do I get to say, I, I have, I have used everything that you gave me and I have left it all behind for, for everybody else to use. Because that really, and I'll tell you, Beverly Anderson from uh, from Metropolitan PD, just EAP, she's absolutely somebody that you should get in touch with because they have absolutely figured out how to do it right. Every 27% usage rate, which is incredible. That is great. That is yeah. great. Um, but she just, she's the most giving woman. And she, that's, that's her thing is that any resource she has, it is her duty to make sure that it's left behind. Their contract is paid for by the union. It is, good, it is a $650,000 negotiated contract so that she can hire a therapist or what have you. So when we're off the air, I'll, I'll give you. Um, Please do. Yeah, that's and that's key. I see, you know, to the chiefs and administrators out there, I say all the time, work with your unions. Don't work against them. Work with them. Absolutely. Is there anything that I haven't covered that you wanted to talk about that um, that you would hope to be able to get out? Uh, yeah, 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 actually there is. I'll give a, a shameless plug here. The FOP is building the agenda now for our second uh, FOP National Wellness Summit. It's going to take place in Nashville, uh, Tennessee, February 8th and 9th. Um, so mark those dates on your calendar. Information starting to come out about registration now. We are uh, working on building the agenda. I can tell you uh, that it's going to consist of a few keynote speakers, there's going to be some uh, breakout educational sessions on a number of different wellness topics, everything from somebody who's just beginning to set up wellness uh, services within their agency to people who have been doing it for a while that are looking to gain some extra knowledge. And then uh, there's going to be some panel discussions with peer support programs that are already in place successfully in some agencies and uh, some police psychologists that we're going to ask about things that happen, you know, what to what therapy looks like. Because there's, a, I think there's a big question mark out there for a lot of people who, you know, might think, listen, you know, therapy, even if you're not having problems, is probably good for you. So, right. um, you know, there's, but I think there's a big question mark for a lot of people about well, what's it going to look like when I go to, am I going to yeah. be laying on a couch? <laughs> you know, what's yeah. it? and so think, you know, things like that. Talking about that to demystify some of the things that people that are keep people from getting the help that they need. So put it on your calendar. Uh, it, on the calendar, I just wrote it down. So thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for thank you for doing a career that I couldn't do. Thank you for continuing <laughs> to give. Um, really, uh, just just truly uh, uh, amazing. And thank you. and keep doing what you're doing because you make a difference. And and I I have loved over the past few years watching. The, the ground that you Thanks. guys are, are making and the reputation you have. It's just, it's proud beautiful. of the FOP. FOP is so, where it's at. <laughs> great. Truly, truly exceptional. So thank you. Thanks, and then, Stephanie. Uh, you're very welcome. And uh, next uh, next weekend on Steph Therapy 911 with Stephanie Samuels, I'm going to have Janice McCarthy, who heads up 
uh, COPS, which is Care of Police Suicide Survivors. She's got an amazing organization, but uh, they do a fundraiser every year for for children to sponsor a a child of an officer who has died by suicide for the holidays. So I wanted to bring her back on to discuss that and, uh, and continue talking about, about solutions to problems. So anyway, take care and, uh, and I will see you next week.